the faith and pierced themselves through with many a pain. Boy, Jesus is the poster child for that verse, isn't it? See what the love of money. So what does that tell us? That better be something we would get out of our lives, right? You gotta have some money. Money in itself is not bad, and you gotta have some to live. And it's good to work and to gain money and you can and give to help the poor and to support your family. But don't be a lover of money. It can turn out really, really bad. Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and Mark rather, kind of recount this same incident. In Matthew 26, beginning with verse 6, and Mark 14, beginning with verse 3, kind of retells it. It doesn't name Mary, but this seems to be uh, telling the same event or recalling it. And what, what I'd like to point your attention to is uh, this, this is Mark 14 and verse 8. After telling about what Mary had done, he said, she has done what she could. Now, to most people, see what Mary did was a very minor, insignificant thing. But to Jesus, it wasn't insignificant. And he said she did what she could. Sometimes I think we look at ourselves and the work of the church and say, boy, I don't have much talent, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. I really, there's just not much I can do. Therefore, it won't hurt if I just do nothing. Is that true? That couldn't be further from the truth, could it? Whatever you can do in the service, everybody can serve in, in various ways, and it's all important. All of it is important. And sometimes I think the things that we can do that we consider to be little things and insignificant things, God sees it as being important and very significant. And I think that's what he's saying about Mary, what she did, that she did what she could. There may be some things she couldn't do, but she did what she could. And there's an example for all of us. Going back to Matthew's account in Matthew 26, in verse 13, I love this. He said, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman did, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Here it is, she did this little insignificant act, right, in the eyes of men. And here 2,000 years later, who are we reading about? <laughs> reading about Mary and her serving the Lord and giving us that good example to follow. Uh, Onesiphorus is another example of that. If you want to turn, we won't have time. But 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 16 through 18, probably even most Christians, if you ask who is Onesiphorus, they say, who? Who is that? But the Bible records it, and he was kind of like Mary. He did what he could. He wasn't a famous preacher, but he did what he could. So a good example for us. From Bethany, now Jesus will travel to Bethpage. And here's a little map. You'll see there that Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. And about halfway, there's Bethpage, about a mile from Jerusalem, and he'll pause there and then continue on later into Jerusalem. So on the way, they, they're close to Bethpage and he asked two of his disciples to go into the city and there you'll find a colt tied and you get this colt and bring it to me because I need it. I'm gonna ride into Jerusalem on this, this colt. 
And if anybody asks you uh, what you're doing, just tell them that the Lord has need of it and he'll, uh, they'll let you have the colt. And uh, the reason I believe that this is recorded again, this is Matthew chapter 21 and verse 8. <laughs> says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. So again, as Jesus goes, we'll see him fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And so that's what makes this one little incident important. Was it important in itself that he wrote on the colt, but it was important that he fulfilled that prophecy. Continues in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 8, talks about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that's also recorded in the Mark, Luke, and John as, as well. And so we see he's riding on the colt, and the people are cutting the, the uh, palm leaves and putting them in the road, and they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. I looked up Hosanna, that's an expression of uh, adoration and praise and joy. And so there's, they're, they're saying that and saying, son of David, they're calling him then the Messiah is basically what they're doing. And they're praising him as the Messiah. So what we see now is uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem in, in, a, in a, a very open way. Remember before there, uh, that um, Jesus wasn't, in John 11, verse 54, he wouldn't go about openly because he knew the Jews wanted to kill him but now he's very open and crowds all around. And of course, the reason for that now is because the time is drawing near, right? It's gonna be very soon, it'll be the right time. Paul wrote in Romans 5 and verse six, it'll be the right time for him to give his life. So he is doing it openly now. Of course, the Pharisees didn't like that. They. Uh, asked Jesus to rebuke his disciples for calling him the Messiah and, and using these terms of praise. But he said there in Luke chapter 19 and verse 40, he said, but Jesus answers that I tell you, if, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And then Luke tells us about him weeping over Jerusalem. And he said, uh, verse 42, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up barricades against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and level you to the ground. So I, this made me think about Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. Uh, there in Ezekiel 33, uh, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, and he implored the uh, Israelites to repent and to return to him. And so Jesus here, knowing what's going to happen to Jerusalem because of their wickedness, took no joy in that he was weeping about what was going to happen to his brethren here in, uh, in Jerusalem, what was going to happen to the city in the near future, about A.D. 70. So as he, in Mark 11... Verse 11, we've got to jump back to Mark. Then we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, but uh, it was already late in the day, so he entered Jerusalem, kind of kind of ended toward the area, and then went, went back out to Bethany. So he would, uh, he would be in, in Jerusalem in the daytime, and at night he would go the two miles back out to Bethany, 
and apparently have stayed with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Uh, could be that he went just because that was a place he had to stay. It could be because it was safer at night to be in Bethany than it would be uh, in Jerusalem. In the Jerusalem, he would be there in the daytime and throngs of people all around him, and he had some, some safety in that. We're beginning in lesson number... Oh, I skipped a page. <laughs> um, and so he, he was in the temple and he was healing. And uh, of course, the, the chief priests again were watching what he was doing. And he, he again, it was the, the second uh, cleansing of the temple. Remember, he had done that before. They were buying and selling in the temple and extorting money from people. And so he overturned uh, the tables and said, you've made my uh, what's supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of, of thieves. And so uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that then the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and all those uh, redouble their efforts to try to destroy him and seeking a way that, that they could do that. So the, I believe it's the next day Jesus was coming out of Bethany and coming into Jerusalem, and there he encountered this fig, fig tree that he had cursed. And uh, the apostles were uh, amazed at how quickly this fig tree had, had withered. And so he gives them a lesson about prayer and about faith. And uh, essentially he said, when you pray to God, you need to have faith. Remember James 1 in verse 6 tells us that... Uh, if you pray doubting, then don't expect to uh, get what you pray for. In thinking about prayer, I thought about some other passages there in Luke 22 and verse 42. When Jesus was praying, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In 1 John 5 and verse 14, it says we need to pray according to the will of God. So if we're asking for evil things, things that's not God's will, then then God's not going to answer those kinds of prayers. But then Jesus gets into forgiveness. That's another thing about our prayer, right? If we expect God to forgive us, then we have to be forgiving people as well. So this little story about the fig tree being withered teaches us some important lessons about prayer, faith and forgiveness uh, for the most part. So he's preaching in the temple. This is in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke chapter 20. I'm going to look mostly at, at Matthew's account, but uh, like what Luke says, what Jesus was doing, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So that's what Jesus is doing in the temple, teaching and preaching the gospel. And the uh, Pharisees, the chief priests, and the elders, it says, and some of the scribes came to him and said, uh, uh, where do you get the authority to do what you're doing? By what authority are you doing this, and where did you get this authority? And so Jesus kind of turns the table on them. He says, I'll tell you what, I've got, an, I've got a question for you, and you answer my question, and then I'll answer yours. He said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And so they thought about that a little bit and said, well, if we say he's from heaven, he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? 
if we say it's from men, we're afraid of the people because they considered him to be a prophet. In fact, in Luke's account, he said they thought they were afraid that the people would stone them to death if they said that John was teaching his baptism was for men. And so once again, they just said, well, we don't know. So to be dishonest one more time, wouldn't say what they really thought. And so uh, Jesus then launches into uh, another parable. And in this parable, he's really going to answer his own question about John. Where was his baptism from? And so here's a, here's a man who has a farm or a vineyard. And he tells one son to go into the vineyard and work. And the son says, no, I'm not going to do it. But then he repented and went. And the second son, he says, go and work in the vineyard. And he, says, he said, okay, I will. But then he never went. And so he said, which one of these did the father's will? And of course, they knew which one it was. It was the one that said no, but then repented and went. And so here's where he really starts uh, kind of putting the pressure on the Pharisees. It reminds me of when David was talking, or Nathan was talking to David about what he had done with Bathsheba and about Uriah. And he talked about the man that had all this many sheep. He wanted to offer a sacrifice, but instead of using one of his, he took this one poor man that had one little ewe lamb. He took that little ewe lamb and offered it. And David got angry and said, boy, that man ought to be killed. And you know what Nathan said? You're the man. And that's what Jesus is going to be doing here with a series of these parables with, with uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so when he told this parable about the two sons, and they said, yeah, the one that repented and went, that's the one that did the Father's will. And this is, this is Matthew 21 and verse 32. And he's, well, let's back up and read uh, 31. Is which of the two sons did the Father's will? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before you. Oh, that smacked him right between the eyes, didn't it? So what's he talking about? The word here is repentance, right? Why, why would the, the, would the uh, prostitutes and the tax collectors enter the kingdom before the Pharisees? It's because when they heard the gospel, they repented. And here the Pharisees were, after all of the evidence that had been, all the, all the miracles, all the prophecies that had been fulfilled, still would not repent and still would deny Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. See, there's the answer to the question, wasn't it? Was John's baptism from heaven or was it from men? He said, John came in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward as to believe in him. So there, as a, as a lesson on righteousness, there can be terrible sins that can be committed. But when we repent, uh, God will accept that. And if we don't repent, then we're going to be condemned uh, just like the Pharisees were. Any comments? We're moving quickly. Oops, I didn't, I didn't look forward it, did I? Parable of the vine growers. So he says, listen to another parable. So he's still talking to the Pharisees here. There was a landowner who went out and he had a, 
a vineyard and he had done everything to, to care for this vineyard so that it would be productive and he could get a produce from the vineyard. And then he went away for a while and he left it in the care of some uh, vine growers, I think they call them. And uh, the idea was he would come back later and he would get some, uh, some produce from, from his vineyard that had been put into care of these vine growers. He said he sent his slaves back and the, and the vine growers would just beat up his servants and send them away and some of them they would kill. And so finally, after he'd done that a couple of times, he said, well, I know I'll, I'll send my son and surely they'll respect my son when I, when I send him and I can get some produce from my vineyards. But of course, when this is Matthew 21, uh, verse 38. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and, and killed him. And so he asked them, what, what, uh, what should he do with the vine growers? And they answered in verse 41, he will bring these wretches into a wretched, into a wretched inn and run out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And Jesus said to them, did you ever read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone and this came, about, came from, about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing fruit in it. So what we see, this of course represented uh, God preparing everything to, uh, for people to be followers of him, to be good, righteous, godly people. And he left it in the care of the, I'm going to call them the religious leaders of the day. And of course, in this day when Jesus was saying that, that would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the priests. And so I've left this in your care, and what have you, what have you done? What you did was, and what we'll do, is of course kill the son. But if you read there in Matthew 23, I've got... Um, Oh, where is that? Verses uh, 13 and 15 of Matthew 23, what we see is that they didn't want to uh, accept the teaching of Jesus and they prevented everybody else from accepting it that they could. And in verse 15, he talks about them making disciples of their own. So rather than making the Pharisees, rather than trying to make disciples of Jesus, they wanted to make disciples of their own. And so Jesus said, uh, this is going to be taken away from you. The vineyard is going to be taken away from you and given to someone else. Some believe he's talking about taking it away from the Jews and giving it to Gentiles. Uh, maybe that's true. I, I wonder if it's the religious leaders taking it away from the religious leaders of the day. Remember when uh, Jerusalem would be destroyed, then the, the temple, the priesthood, all of that's going to go away. And who would be the religious leaders now? It would be the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers that you read about in Ephesians chapter 4. So he's taken the care of the vineyard away from the Pharisees and that old priesthood and given it to somebody else. So here's once again, he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom before you, and I'm going to take 
the vineyard away from you and I'm going to give it to somebody else. So he's just, he's wearing them out pretty good right now. Then there's a parable of the wedding feast. And uh, this is similar to the one we read over in Luke 14 when he was in the, in the Pharisee's house. This will be the last one. We'll have to close with this. We're just about out of time. He said, the kingdom, this is in Matthew 22, starting with uh, verse 2, another parable. He spoke to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast and he invited people from all around. And it says, but they were unwilling to come. He's talking about the Jews. And I think the Pharisees and Sadducees may be in particular here. The wedding feast, he invited them, but they were unwilling. And uh, they didn't make excuses like we read about back over in Luke 14, but it just said they just paid no attention and went on their way to their farm or to their business. They just paid no attention to the invitation. And so he began again uh, to seize the, the uh the slaves of the king there and to mistreat them, which would probably be uh, prophets and so forth that God had sent to them over the years. And uh, in, in verse 7 it says, But the king was enraged because they wouldn't accept the invitation and the way he was treating his servants. And he said he sent his armies to destroy the murderers and set, them, set their city on fire, probably uh, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place there in AD 70. And then in verse 9, he went out into the highways and inviting more people to come. And of course, that was probably in, in reference to the Gentiles, people all throughout the world to come to this wedding feast. But he makes one more point about this. And uh, there in verse 11, but when the king came in, in to look over the, the uh, dinner guests, he saw one man that was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he asked him, how, are you, how is it you come in without the wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Verse 30, or 13, it said, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness, that place where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen. So what that, that lesson is for us, if, if we're going to be citizens in the kingdom, then we've got to put on, in the, in the parable here, the, the proper wedding garment. Don't we? what, what would that be? But on Christ, I think I put there Galatians 3 and verse 27. That's exactly what that says. Those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? To be like him, right? <laughs> we accept his teaching. We humbly submit to the gospel that he teaches. And we, we put on Christ. And so that's, that's the wedding garment we need to put on. Others will be rejected. Much more could be said about it. We're going to close right there. It's a quarter after. Uh, I know we've moved quickly. <laughs> we got part of the way through uh, uh, lesson number five. So next week, hopefully finish five and get into six. And we should be back, back on schedule.